everyone. Welcome to the Gentle Parents Unite weekly podcast from Gentle Parents Unite Becoming Gentle with Sujai Johnston, Vivek Patel, and me, Margie Zeus. So grab yourself a cup of coffee or a cup of tea or hot cocoa, whatever you love. Make sure you have a notebook and a pencil so you can jot down your thoughts and questions. Sit back and enjoy. Welcome to the Gentle Parents Unite weekly podcast. We have a wonderful episode for you today. Uh, So we're going to jump right in. Uh, We have uh, an interview this week with uh, two two folks who help us um, administrate the Gentle Parents Unite Facebook group, that giant one that is... uh, you might be aware of Shannon Delvecchio and Joshua Jernigan agreed to come on with us today and talk about uh, gentle parenting from their very unique perspectives. It was a great episode uh, speaking about um, diversity and uh, different kinds of families and helping our kids navigate uh, this ever growing, ever ever more interesting world. I hope you'll stick with us, Um, and we're going to jump into that interview right after the break, so stay with us. out at Gentle Parents Unite in the big group. It's, uh, we have with us today uh, Joshua Jernigan and Shannon Delvecchio. So welcome, folks. It's so good to have you with us. Thank you. We're glad to be here. Yep, thank you. So Vivek, would, would you like to tell folks a bit about how this uh, conversation with uh, Shannon and Joshua came about? Sure. Thank you. So um, we are in this season, one of the things that we have planned was to uh, interview the different admin at, G- at Gentle Parents Unite, which is our big Facebook group on, uh, big parenting group on Facebook. And if you're on Facebook, you should Google Gentle Parents Unite and join. It's a really great group. And um, we have an admin team of about 25, something like that, 25 plus people. And every single person on that group has got deep wisdom and a unique perspective and a unique experience. And we all work together to offer support to our almost 50,000 members, which is really great. And uh, and one of the beautiful things about our group that I really value is it's a very diverse group, um, not accidentally. 
and uh, and there are people of color on the group. There are people um, of different gender identities on the group. There are people of different sexual orientations in the group. There are people of very different family dynamics and uh, demographics in the group. And it's just really wonderful. And we all learn from each other. And so we thought that one one really interesting and uh, and I would say profound uh, or powerful thing for us to talk about is the different kind of family dynamics and how gentle parenting relates to that. And both Shannon and Joshua are in uh, same-sex married couples with children doing gentle parenting. And so we wanted to have the two of you um, come on and share some of your experience with us. Um, and so that's, I think, why we're why we're here. So we can learn about your experience and maybe some of the things that are unique to your, what you think might be unique to your experience, uh, things that might be the same and challenges you face and successes and just kind of about what your lives are like and what your experience is like. Now, Joshua, you have founded a Gender Education Network and I, I am really fascinated to hear about that. So I hope that you'll, you'll speak a little bit about that or help our listeners understand what it is and how they can support you or, or get support from you. Yeah, of course. Um, I founded um, Gender Education Network, which is for transgender and gender diverse kids under 12. I founded it because I knew some people who had children and they were not having support. And so I figured I could offer that support because it's something that I know a lot about and have, you know, a lot of interest in that community. And so we started it from that, and it's it's been amazing. I mean, we're all over Facebook, and we have a uh, website as well that if people want to check us out, we are always here to support any parents who need any help or anything of that nature. I mean, we, we can provide any type of services that are needed for trans and gender diverse kids. And, and this is a local organization? Well, it's on Facebook, so obviously it's... It, it's big. Uh, well, we offer a local element to it. That's that's kind of, we offer an in-person support group, which is kind of like a big play date for these kids because it's just a way for them to know that there are other children out there like them. Um, trans kids get a lot of guff in the media. There's a lot of bills being passed in political parties and all of that right now in the United States that kind of aim themselves at trans kids and the care that they can get. So we want to make sure to provide these kids with a safe space. Uh, we can provide services to people anywhere in the United States right now. We can help you find doctors, help you get your school system on board, help you fight any type of discrimination that your child may be facing. Um, but right now, our in-person support meetings are only local to us over here in, in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. But we are looking to expand out a little bit and try to get chapters in other states. It's it's on the plan for the next five years to get cool. some more support groups in other places for the for trans and gender diverse kids. You anticipated my next question. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for that work that you're doing. Absolutely. You mentioned that it is for children under twelve. Correct. Is is there a specific reason that there's the age limit on that? Is that because of the in-person support groups? Or um, is there somewhere that children over 12 could reach out for support? There seems to be a lot of um, local and national support for kids over 12, for teenagers and young adults who are trans or gender diverse. Um, locally, we actually have a really great organization that works with kids 
about 12 and up. So when we started it, we were looking specifically to support the kids that were unsupported. As we've done a little bit of research to find information more on a national level, we're learning that there is not a lot of national support for trans kids or gender diverse kids, because a lot of people believe that children don't know who they are or can't understand what's happening. And so we provide the capabilities to support those people who are less likely to be supported. Mm -hmm. We trust children and we help parents to trust children. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And at its core, that statement that you made, um, we trust children and we help teach parents to trust their children. At its core, that's really the essence of gentle parenting in its whole. And um, I think that's why this topic, or one of the reasons why this topic um, for us at Gentle Parents Unite is so integral to gentle parenting is that we do trust our children and when they tell us something we believe them and you know um being trans or gender diverse shouldn't be a struggle where our society to to change but in the current structure um when our child comes to us and um you know they're experiencing getting to know themselves in ways that are outside the norms, this can certainly cause a lot of different struggles in their lives and being there to support them is, um, it, it's really truthfully, particularly when our children have a, a struggle that makes it harder for them to get by in daily society without being discriminated against, their lives are dependent on our support. Thank you for saying that, Sujai, because obviously, as you probably know, the suicide rate um, for queer kids who are unsupported is astronomically high. So it's a very true statement that their lives are dependent on support um, because there's a lot of research that kids who receive acceptance and love and support at home around who they truly are are much less likely to kill themselves. So it's pretty direct. You really can't sugarcoat it. <laughs> you can't dress that up in a pretty bow and pretend that it's not. Yeah. You know, I uh, I was thinking when when preparing for for this for this call, I was thinking about myself as a person of color and how um, racism and and racial awareness was not something that I had to think about. Um, talking to my daughter about. It was present with us in everything that we did. And it was always kind of a part of our education and our learning and our, and our awareness of life. And, uh, and I know that, that it's possible for white people to get along in their lives and not talk about race and it doesn't have to necessarily come up. Mm. Um, and so I wonder about that for, um, for you and your families, how do you, um, do you have something that can you relate to that from from being uh, from being in same sex marriages and uh, and having that as part of your life and living in a culture like I like I mentioned before living in a homophobic culture? Um, how do you manage that with your kids? How do you interact with that? I'm really curious about that because I know it's been one area of challenge for me always to hold it in a way that was honest and clear and helped her have information and at the same time reflected the values that I want to reflect in the world. So that's kind of what I have always kind of worried about and struggled and tried to find that balance. 
Um, I think that um, there's a few different pieces to that. I think actually men and women tend to have very different experiences on this front. Um, and non-binary trans people tend to have different experiences than cis people. Um, being, uh, being a stay-at-home mom in a playground or doing after-school activities or being involved in my daughter's classroom, I'm almost always primarily around other women. And um, I've thought so many times how it's so much easier to be a lesbian mom than it would be to be a gay dad. Wow. Because there's just, um, there, there are lots of ways in which it doesn't matter once you're in sort of a gender cohort. Granted, as, as you know, I live in a very progressive area, so I might feel very differently about that if I were um, living where Joshua lives, for example. <laughs> right. But I, I think that probably that divide would also be the same, and I think probably this is one of the reasons why Joshua is highly sensitized to the exclusion of fathers. And for me, you know, I'm, I've always taken a leadership role around organizing playdates for the kids in my neighborhood. Um, you know, I, I'm kind of like super mom. Um, and I feel like I, um, I often am fitting in very easily with these other stay at home moms with this sort of difference that's off on the side and doesn't matter that much. And there have been many situations where I have felt like it doesn't matter at all. And I think sometimes that's because I'm in this very progressive area. And sometimes it's because our society, um, doesn't encourage very much involvement from fathers when they're young. And so little children up until school age are kind of used to not having their dads around that much. That's a very common dynamic. It's just brought to my attention how, uh, how similar actually it is if you if, if there's not a lot of dads around, there's been there's been so many families around us where the dads are certainly present in the home and they certainly are loving fathers, but they are not the ones who are attending the children's birthday parties. They are not the ones who are um, organizing the play dates. Um, when I make an effort to include fathers, it's often it requires a lot of effort on my side, and I really. To make sure that we have somewhat um, better gender mixes at our playdates specifically, um, but there's an intersection here between sexism and um, how that plays out in parenting and um, gender roles in relationships and homophobia and all of that kind of stuff. Because I live in kind of a aggressive area, I think that I don't meet a lot of homophobia in my community on a regular basis. What I notice more is that the um, emotional um, and sort of playful absence of, of fathers is actually making my child's life more similar to um, the other kids in our neighborhood who are having a lot of those same dynamics in their household. Does that make sense? Sure. This reminds me, uh, Shannon, this really reminds me about how uh, when when my, my kid's 22, right? And so, uh, and I was the stay-at-home parent uh, in, in my family. And when she was young and I was always involved in school, I used to say, 
I used to say, oh yeah, I was hanging. Uh, it pe people would say, oh, who was helping at the event? And I would say it was me and the other mothers. And because uh, I was the only, I was the only dad that was involved and, uh, and everyone it would make everyone laugh. And I would say that, um, but, uh, but it was really true. I would almost forget. Um, I would almost forget that fathers existed. And I was just in this world with um, all these other, or all these other mothers. I'm still saying it. So uh, yeah, it's true. And it's, and when another father would, would come in uh, to a, like a school council meeting or they would show up to the barbecues or whatever to, to help, it would be such a, such a thing to meet them. So, and so was it, it, it's true. I hadn't thought of, uh, I hadn't thought of that before. I think actually in our, um, in our community, uh, one of the things we have a few friends who, um, who are divorced and we're closer to the father. And, um, so I, I have made a lot of effort to like bring some of the dads really into our play dates and create figure out what's required to make more space for dads. But I almost feel like I'm using my privilege to support the dads, if that makes sense. Like I'm aware of the dynamics around sexism and relationship and all, and all of that, but I don't feel like in the daily life of parenting in community around me that I am in a more subordinate position, if that makes sense. I often feel like it would be harder to be a single dad than to be a lesbian mom. I never, I never would have guessed that. <laughs> it may not be true in other areas. And I also think that one reason I feel that way is because I am a very cisgendered person. So I fit in with all of these other kind of like uh, more conventionally feminine moms very easily. And I might feel differently if I didn't. But I do know other lesbian moms in my community that have had kind of a similar experience to me. We've talked about it before. So I know it's not totally isolated just to me. Wonderful. Thank you, Shannon. Um, Joshua, I'm curious about your experience uh, around this being, you know, a two-dad family and, uh, and, and, you know, Shannon saying that she thinks it's probably harder on you in a lot of ways uh, socially and on the playground. Um, and I'm curious what your experience of that is. Yeah, um, I I tend to agree with what Shannon was saying. As, as the stay-at-home dad, it is interesting to be the one who makes the playdates. It's interesting to see how other parents treat you. Um, we have not had great experiences with um, certain sets of playdates because it, men are looked at as strange or odd or must have some ulterior motive when we are the stay-at-home parents, I think, especially in conservative southern areas. And that's kind of where we are, and that's kind of where we moved from, so that's kind of all that I know. Uh, we would love to live in a socially progressive area that this might be a different experience, but unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, we are where we are. Um, we have had a lot of, of negative feedback. Uh, people have followed us around the playground. We've, we've been interrogated. Uh, as to when we, when I take my daughter off the playground, a lot of people have said things to us, and it's it's interesting to kind of see their reaction when I'm like, no, I am her dad, and she is going with me whether you like it or not. Ah, um, that's so painful. That's so painful it, to hear. It is, and it's yeah. it's inter It's just I, I look at it more as interesting to see how people view fathers in general. Yeah. 
um, we are a two-dad household. And so my daughter doesn't have an active mother who is there to do things. So, you know, you see a lot of things that are like mommy and me classes for stay-at-home parents or uh, we, we plan to homeschool as of right now. And so we see a lot of homeschooling groups that are geared towards moms only. And so it's interesting because we want to be able to provide our daughter with the same level of interaction and education that everyone else wants to. Definitely. But we find a lot of barriers to that. But then again, on the flip side, we have also had some really great experiences. Um, for example, her gymnastics place that we take her to, they started out, you know, they had a mommy and me class for the younger kids. And then uh, when they would let the, the kids go for water breaks they'd say go see your moms and we were there for one class and by the second class everything had changed it was now a parent in me class and they were saying go see your parents to get their water break really and so it's it's really awesome to see small things like that and know that those changes are are happening and this is a a, a conservative area and this gymnastics place is actually run by a rather conservative human being who is just amazing because she doesn't want to be exclusive even though she believes very differently from the way we believe that's really fascinating to hear. I, I mean, at, at, in such a conservative area, um, it must be quite affirming to have something like that happen. It very much is, yes. And and so I'm I'm curious. Like I know that I, I'm really hearing you about how um, there there's especially where you live, there are people that are always kind of looking at you in a particular way and judging you and even following you around, which is which is um, I guess not surprising. It's, it's, hurt, it's, it's painful to hear, but it's not surprising, really. Um, and I'm wondering how you, how you uh, share that kind of information or frame that, those experiences with your, with your child so that it, um, how do you want it to land with them? And how do you, yeah, how do you, how do you work with that? Um, beautifully, she's rather oblivious to a lot of things. <clears throat> um, and we, as much as we want her to be as knowledgeable as possible, we do try to keep these type of things from her because she already is going to face a lot of stigma in her life just because she is a, a, a brown will grow up to be a brown woman as she ages right um and so she's going to experience a lot and so as much as we can protect her from the issues that my husband and i have to face we do try you know when people start talking one of us will take her away when people make comments we just try to make sure that we're a little bit louder so she can't hear those comments. Uh -huh. That's beautiful. Beautiful. That is beautiful. I love it exactly the way you said it, too. Try to be louder. Yeah, I, w I wanted to mention again that I think um, region is so important in this conversation because um, actually our neighbors two doors down are a gay male couple with two adopted sons. And um, their sons don't look like them. They clear, it's fairly obvious that they are adopted. Um, and I don't have the impression that they have experienced these same kinds of um, dynamics that Joshua is experiencing. I do think that they have struggled with the no, there isn't a mom in this family issue. Um, but I don't think that... Um, I don't think they feel like they've experienced a ton of discrimination um, on, on around the homophobia. Their their homophobia discrimination is probably similar to, similar to mine, which is fairly limited. Um, and I 
I am often shocked when I hear about things that are happening around the country, because I do think in the Bay Area, not that none of it happens, but we are so insulated and our experience is it's really, really different um, than what happens in the South. I have a lot of family in the South, so I also have some personal experiences of how different it is, whether or not I feel comfortable holding my wife's hand there um, or even just standing there with her because um, she is gender nonconforming. And um, and here I don't have those issues as much. So I just wanted to um, kind of re-emphasize that um, if you're listening to this and you live in a conservative area, being aware of these dynamics and being um, caring about it is something really meaningful that you can do to go do the extra thing to make somebody feel more comfortable. Um, Because our experience in our families is colored so much by the tone of the community that we live in and the people that we really don't even know, aren't even friends with, but just encounter in our daily lives. Shannon and and Joshua, I realize that our listeners may not know about your, you know, how many kids you have, how old they are. Can you tell us a little bit about your family? Um, sure. My wife and I have one daughter. Her name is Alexis. Um, she is six and a half years old. And um, actually, I think another thing that is probably worth mentioning is that she and I look a lot alike. And so I think um, we also don't deal with the overt discrimination against adoptees and against adoptive families that Joshua is likely to experience being in a transracial adoption. Um, So, um, you know, there's there's a few layers where um, the way that we experience stigma is just super different, in my opinion. Yeah, I can agree with that. For everyone listening, uh, my husband and I are are married, and uh, we have one daughter. She's four and a half. Um, She is adopted transracially. With she's a Pacific Islander. Um, We have an open adoption, which people tend to be a little bit more okay with because we do have contact with her family. And um, you know, we we're going strong as as a small family of three right now. We have actually talked about. fostering older kids when Lexi is in school, but now we're kind of talking about homeschooling. So I'm not sure I want to introduce that dynamic anymore. I'm not sure I would have the emotional bandwidth to deal with um, a child with a really extensive trauma history and a younger child still in the house. So I think we're a bit in flux on, on that topic. How do you envision? Uh, how do you envision homeschooling? What, are you going to be unschooling, or is there going to be a curriculum? How how does that fit with your in your home? What's your vision? My daughter started kindergarten this fall at our, our local public school, and one of the reasons that I chose that school and that I I really love that school in a lot of ways is that it is amazingly culturally diverse. There are 17 languages spoken at home by families in that school. Um, a significant percentage, over half of the kids speak other languages at home. Um, they come from all over the world. It's racially diverse. Um, and so I loved that she could be in kind of a little United Nations world. I grew up in San Francisco where that was a lot of my childhood experience. Um, I was almost always a minority as a white person. 
and um, most of my friends spoke other languages at home. And I was always at their houses, listening to all these different languages, trying different foods that um, were not what we ate in my house. And, and I really treasured those aspects of my childhood. And I wanted her to have some of that too. Um, but this has been a tough year for us um, in terms of encountering homophobia, because um, a lot of the families are new immigrants. They're not really culturally um, aligned at this time. They may become more culturally and they're not really currently culturally aligned with the kind of broader ethos of this area yet. Um, and so we have um, been excluded from a couple of play dates um, and uh, there have been a few times where I I've gotten the cold shoulder from parents, which has not been at all a factor of my experience before we started school. So that's been a little jarring. I, I expected that we were going to hit a little bit of homophobia, but it has felt a little more insidious than I expected. And my daughter hasn't really taken to school. She has been doing well there. She gets um, great feedback from her teachers that she's really on track academically. Her behavior is... Um, quote unquote, good, meaning that she's compliant with the rules and follows directions and um, listens well and does the work and stuff like that. But she's very unhappy there. Um, and I think probably the main reason for that is she is used to having a life where I, I have the time and the flexibility to just pay attention to what her interests are and um, support her in exploring them. And, you know, we've spent her whole life doing things that she wants to do when she wants to do them. And being in a classroom setting where there's 22 kids and one adult means that that's not possible. So um, she has been putting a lot of pressure on me to homeschool her, actually. And I think I probably will. I think I just sort of still need this break. It was very taxing to me being a full-time stay-at-home parent, trying so hard to give her all of that emotional support and encouragement and taking her wherever she wanted to go and not really having enough time for myself. And so I just felt like I needed this break and um, she, we're in conversation about it. I've, I've told her that it's going to be hard for me not to have enough time by myself. It's going to be hard for me not to have enough time to do household tasks and do the things that I need to do without being pestered. She's pretty pestery when she wants to do something. Um, and I have told her, you know, when you're old enough that you can understand more clearly that I need to do something for two hours and you will be able to do something else for two hours, I promise you I will homeschool you. Um, until then, we need to figure out a solution that's going to work for everybody in the family. So um, I feel like that um, the main reason that she wants to be um, homeschooled is that she wants to be unschooled. She does not want to do curriculum in our house. She, she wants to go back to what we used to do, which was um, whatever she wanted. And she learned a lot. You know, she ended up um, being very, very well-prepared for school that way um, with basically no 
imposed consequences, uh, lots of connection and conversation. I was actually a little worried about whether or not it would be hard for her to make that transition since we don't have tons of structure in our house. We don't even have structure around mealtimes. Like we're eating right now. If you want to eat with us, great. If you want to go play, that's fine. Um, you can eat later. I, I have no problem making her a separate meal, stuff like that. So um, I thought it might be hard for her to have this uh, very regimented structure. We're going to do outdoor play for these 15 minutes and then come inside and you're going to do this. And it has been hard for her, but she has been very, very good at adapting to it. So that was interesting for me to see and kind of heartening because I think it's important to have that skill set. A lot of times in life, we have to do things we don't want to do. We have to be on other people's schedules. Um, we don't get the attention that we want. And I'm kind of thrilled that she was able to get into a situation, tell me, I don't really like this, but also be able to do it. She has the impulse control to do it. She has the um, the emotional skills to do it. She has the intellectual capacity to do it. And that was kind of heartening for me. I think that was a really good test, but I don't want to keep her somewhere that she doesn't want to be. So that's why we'll probably look at homes at, uh, at unschooling essentially. That's so cool. Uh, you know, it's interesting. I was thinking while you were talking, as you know, and listeners, if you've been listening for any length of time, you know that I pursued unschooling child-led education home education for my my son and the outcome was wonderful and and like you described shannon we had no was no rigidity at all there was no schedule uh everything was pretty loose and to the extent that we could flow with his needs and wants and uh, passions, we did to the extent that we couldn't, we couldn't. But for the most part, it was uh, very harmonious, very easy to do. And just for the folks in the uh, in the back there, I just want to say that this young man who always had his voice respected and listened to his preferences, desires, and needs listened to, um, has emerged from his uh, childhood as an adult who is a very capable adult. He's um, never had a problem towing the line at work, you know, showing up on time, uh, doing what he needed to do when he was confronted with doing a job he didn't really care for. He found another job kept this job while he was working that until he was able to transition to another job. So he sort of handled it the way one would hope an adult would handle uh, making a shift in their life when they um, felt the need to do that. And it's really been wonderful to watch. And uh, a lot of times people will say, and I know this isn't about home education, so I'll, I'll wrap it up shortly, but I do want to just, put this one point in a lot of people may think how will a kid learn to show up on time if we never make them or how will they learn to go to bed at a decent hour if we don't make them and the truth is just because we make them doesn't mean that that's what they're learning as 
parents and adults, we often focus on this end goal of our children being able to be on time and hold a job and all of these things that, yes, they are required to be part of society and they are very important skill sets. I do want to remind parents that that can also come from kind of a abled point of view, so to speak, as some people have further struggles around certain things, such as um, maintaining a job or um, living in public or, you know, being out in public or whatever continued hardships towards these ultimate adult skill sets. Um, I think that sometimes I just want to remind people that sometimes they seem to disregard the person behind the struggle or the behavior and recognizing that what society deems as developmentally appropriate or what we're looking for as the ultimate goal and all of that can sometimes be coming from an um, point of view that everybody can or should achieve the same place in life. And just as long as we're recognizing our children and seeing that sometimes um, they may be a little they may need a little bit more. And also that in a family unit, I tend to see 18 or um, moving out and um, doing your own thing. All is very arbitrary to actually um, being set up for success, if that makes sense. I completely agree with you. It is such an arbitrary number. And why did we pick it? It's really strange. <laughs> of course, that's going to be different for every person. It's so weird. And so many people have told me, you know, you and you and Lexi are so intertwined with each other. She's going to live with you guys forever. And I, I always tell people, you know what? If she wants to meet her person and move in with us and we'll have a multi-generational household, we're down with it. We have no issue with that. We don't care. It's so strange how people will um, almost use that as like the worst case scenario. She's going to be living with you when she's 35. I mean, okay. I so much agree with you. Like my ultimate goal in life is to have the communal place where my children can have homes on my property and <laughs> live their, their entire lives um, because that would feel so amazing to me. That may not be what they want <laughs> and if it's not that's fine with me but I always want to have that opened and that option there for them because you know life really can be a struggle and if we're looking at like statistically speaking the average two-parent working family is one unexpected $400 bill away from homelessness it's kind of an amazing statistic right there. And when we recognize that with the cost of living and the struggles of life, um, more communal families is kind of where it's at in order for um, people to really get by. And beyond the financials of it, there's also the emotional aspect that comes from having a supportive community and a supportive family unit. I actually think you hit on something that's very relevant to the stated topic of our um of our podcast today because there are a really significant number of gay and lesbian couples with children that don't have 
family connection and family support in the same way. Uh, or they have obviously this can this can be true for for any family, but there is a statistically significant number of gay and lesbian couples with kids that are either not in contact with their parents at all or would not trust their parents to take care of their children um, and teach them uh, positive and affirming messages. Um, and I do think that uh, I hear this a lot in the gay and lesbian community that um, not being able to rely on parents, um, while it's not unique to our community by any means, it is maybe more common and really hard. And so I think that Maybe that's one of the reasons why I hear a lot of gay and lesbian couples being like, why are people acting like it's so terrible to have your kids still in your life and really close and connected? Because for many of us, we, you know, I didn't speak to my mother for over two years when I first came out. Um, we have a relationship now. It is a fairly good relationship. We, um, we have mended a lot of our past, but um, that was... That was hard to come by, and certainly there there were many years when um, I w- I would never have even considered letting my child have a relationship with my mother, and so I'm very sensitive to that schism that can happen in families, and I definitely don't want that. I think intergenerational uh, living has the potential to be really positive and really healing, and I'm really joyful for all the generations very hard not to have your parents around actually especially when you have a young child and you need breaks and you don't have anybody to help you mm-hmm. I, I really feel that sense of disconnection from family is almost a predictable outcome of the traditional parenting model uh, it's almost it's almost impossible for it not to happen unless like my mother unless somebody has like a break the, the old the parent has a breakthrough of consciousness or something um, but in 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 general, this this sense of wanting to get away from our kids ha- ha- happens almost inevitably because of the coercive hierarchical relationship that the traditional parenting model is built on, and it's really hard to form a deep, connected human relationship with somebody when you're also their boss and have power over them, and uh, and they know that, and you know that, and everybody knows that. <laughs> so here, here. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and then when we add all sorts of other stuff on top of that, like racism and homophobia, and not and like expecting them to live a particular way and be a particular way, and that goes up up our, to our generation and down. And that's why, as gentle parents, we put so much effort into into not having our kids feel that. You know, I was telling my daughter just the other day that when she moves out, I'm going to move into her basement. And, uh, and she was laughing. I think she was laughing. <laughs> a long time ago, I remember talking to somebody who was a, a fellow musician. And so it wasn't even about parenting. It was long before I became a parent. And this guy said something that stuck with me my whole life. And it was, it was this, whenever you're doing something that's different than the mainstream you you become the other and that doesn't feel so good and it doesn't bode so well and one remedy for that is to find other people who are doing the same thing and nestle into or create and nestle into a community 
where you can derive support and give support and feel for lack of, I'm sorry, I, I can't think of a different word right now, but feel normal, feel like this is my normal and these people are with me. And um, I, I know I did that for our home education. Uh, we do that in the large group in Gentle Parents Unite um, in a virtual way. And the more we're able to create family and create community, I, I think the outcomes are, are stronger and better. Mm. I make another plea for community and um, our primal need for human connection and how important human connection is. I've recently, I think I talked about this on last week's podcast, I've been making this um, plea for what's really good in life and enjoying what's good in life. And really at the top of that list is that human connection. And again, the goal that our children would move away from us as part of the growth process. Um, certainly it could be that, and that could be good and positive based on everybody's um, stability and earning potential and all of those other things. But that community, particularly when we feel shifts in our community right now, my sister, um, her husband or her ex-husband just passed away at Christmas time and, um, her adult children and her are drawing closer together to get through this time. And that was something that she was just repeating to me as well the other day is that plea for human connection in the hard times, how much we want to lean into our community and our children and really be together. And at the end of our days, as cryptic as that sounds, that's really what's going to be the most important to us is our relationships with those who were most important to us in life, um, whether that's our parents or our children or our spouses. But truly that's um, at the core of human existence is this connection and this love that we feel between family and community. The, the plea for human connection is, is always a good thing, but that is one thing that we work very hard to find within the LGBT community is other parents dealing with the same things we're dealing with. And going back to what Shannon said earlier, where everything is so regional, one of the things we struggle here is finding other gay dad families, because there just aren't a lot of us here, because a lot of them do move to more progressive areas. And so building our community is something that, you know, you have to be so intentional about. And I think that goes for building community for any type of parenting. But you start adding in the intersectionalities, you start adding in race issues and gender issues and sexuality issues and expression issues and anything of that nature, you find it a little bit harder to find your people. So being part of an activist, I guess, community to create community for those who don't have community is something that I know that, you know, that's that's how Gender Education Network started was to create community for those who didn't have community. And so it's something that's very important to us. And so I always tell people, you know, if you are capable of creating a community, Someone needs your community. And that's, that's a really big thing, especially in the gay community, is the gay male community has such a reputation. And breaking that reputation, breaking that stereotype to show that we can be family people is, is very, very important. 
It's so true, Joshua. You need to come and visit us. <laughs> yeah, I just what I what I just heard from you, Joshua, it really uh, really touched me that you feel you have to prove to society that you can be a family person because of this deep stigma around men and gay males. Yeah, and and it's something you know a lot of people. That's that's one of the arguments used against like gay families adopting. I mean, there's been a big bill in Tennessee right now that um, allows foster agencies to discriminate against LGBT families solely on the basis because they are LGBT. Mm. And so it's like we have to spend our time proving ourselves constantly, constantly, constantly. And if we have any type of little missteps, and we're, we're human, we all have missteps. I snapped at my daughter at the grocery store a couple of weeks ago because there was just so much. We were all the way up here and you know, we apologized. We we made up for it and everything like that. But all people in the grocery store saw was, oh, see, this is why you shouldn't have two dads because your dad is always going to be snappy. Hmm. Mm. And so we're constantly having to to deal with that on top of everything else. And so it's interesting to to try to find your community in that regard. Whew. Yeah, I I really applaud you for um, being able to create community. I'd like to ask you what recommendations, and this goes out to both of you, Shannon and Joshua. What recommendations do you have for parents who are maybe listening, who really don't know the, what to do to create community in their, in their town, their, their neighborhood? Um, I have noticed that there is a very natural um, affinity between single moms and lesbian parents because of the issue of not having a father in the, in the home, which is probably the primary stigma that we experience is like a lot of hand wringing over how are they going to grow up to be healthy humans without, um, without two cisgendered opposite sex parents. Um, and I was very close with my father and I really, really loved my father and I miss my father a lot. So I'm sensitive to it because part of me is like, I know, will she be okay without a great dad? Um, and I know a lot of um, single moms who either lost their husbands or their husbands were not going to be people that they wanted their kids to be around or um, they just jumped ship for whatever reason. Obviously, it's a common pattern in society. And so... I think that a lot of times for lesbian couples with kids that are um, in regions like Joshua's where they might not be able to find other um, same-sex couples as easily, um, definitely single moms are a good source of community for lesbian moms, um, at least if they're, you know, affirming, um, which is not always the case, of course, but... um, I have found that a lot of single moms really have experienced that feeling of other and getting a little taste of feeling otherized um, sometimes does awaken your compassion for noticing when it's happening to other people, even if they're in a little bit of a different situation than you are. Um, Obviously, since there's so many single moms out there, that's like a one of the other reasons why I was saying earlier, I think it's easier to be in the same sex female couple than male couple because that's such a common phenomenon. So that is a sense of community. Um, and I do think that um, 
there are a lot of uh, women who are trying to figure out how, how to get more men involved in the lives of their child. Even even women who are not single moms are trying to, to do that, either with their husbands who are not showing up in the way that they would like or um, with their ex-husbands who they don't really like their parenting style. Um, so for, for me, that's been um, a source of community that is easier to find than other same-sex parents. Although right immediately in my, in my area, in my neighborhood, there's five or six um, uh, gay and lesbian couples with kids. Um, so I'm not in the same situation as Joshua. I can I literally, you know, we can get on our bikes and go to um, other families. So Lexi has grown up with a lot of um, a modeling that this is a perfectly normal uh, way to have a family. And I don't think that it's easy to make her feel totally excluded because of that, because if people are not aware, like some of the kids in her school, if people are not aware that um, same-sex families exist, I think it's her tendency to think they are uninformed um, rather than to feel stigmatized. Although um, it has been coming up for her a little bit that she doesn't have a dad. And um, so we're kind of... Uh, just working with that process a little bit. And, um, and that's, like I said, a reason why sometimes it can be helpful to chat with single moms. Yeah. And, and touching on what you said, we also worry quite a bit about like, is she going to be, you know, is our daughter going to be well-rounded not having a mom in the household? And, and we, we talk a lot about who we do have instead of who we don't have, you know, yeah, you don't have a mom in the household. That's, that sucks. I'm sorry. But, you know, you have aunt so-and-so who lives here and we can go visit her anytime we want. And you've got aunt so-and-so who's going to take you for a sleepover this weekend. And so we, we're big proponents of just making sure that you have positive role models instead of positive parents. Because while everyone wants to have their parents be the most important aspect of their life and of their children's life as parents, they want to be, the reality is our kids are going to grow up and they may not want us to be the most important aspect of their life yeah so giving them a lot of of caregivers giving them a lot of just in general people can help them for if for some reason they don't want us to be their community i couldn't agree more joshua and i i have to say that you just reminded me of a of a core value that i wanted to have for available for my son was trusted adults in his life in case he needed to tell someone something and he didn't feel comfortable. I couldn't know whether he was always going to feel comfortable to tell me everything, but I wanted someone who had his best interests in mind to be able uh, and for him to know that he could go and talk to that person and feel safe. So cultivating that kind of thing is Kind of exactly what I was talking about when I was asking about community creation. Mm, having positive role models is not always necessarily um, family or, you know, the parents that are in the home. Um, they're positive male role models and um, positive female role models. If we're gendering and if we truly think that's important, those role models are all around us in the cisgendered world, right? Um, I really feel that having 
positive role models in your life is so much more important than balancing the genders of those role models in your life. Um, certainly, it's wonderful to have positive male or positive female role models. And it's also wonderful to have cis or to have, you know, trans and gender diverse role models in your children's life as well. Um, you know, living in a primarily white conservative area, um, my kids don't actually get exposed to very much diversity. And because of that, um, it, it comes down to having a lot of conversations. Whereas if we were in a more diverse type of an area, say like where you live, Shannon, um, it might be more normalized and commonplace for them. And the conversations wouldn't have to be as, um, they would take a different note and not need to be maybe as frequent, but they would certainly have a different note to them because they would have this normalized role models around them that are diverse in many different ways, whether that's racially or gender or um, however, however that appears or presents for them. I, I do think that role models are just that. They're role models and they're wonderful to have in our lives and their genders are so unimportant. As um, you were saying, Shannon, about single moms, I felt that stigma as a young single mom when I had my oldest. I was a single mom for almost eight years before I got together with the dad of my three younger kids. And um, I felt that stigma quite a bit of being othered in a way. And um, in my 40s, as a single mom, again, I think it's a little bit more um, commonplace or more accepted um, to be a single mom. So I don't feel that othering as much now in this juncture in life as a single mom. So it's, it's interesting, I think, how the perspectives of the people around me um, change as far as being a single mom in your 20s and being a single mom in your 40s. It's uh, quite a different feeling around it. I actually just wanted to respond really quick to something you said, so I'm going to jump in and then it'll be fast, um, which is uh, I, often when I hear this thing about um, it's so important for kids to have a mom and a dad, um, I feel mild annoyance because the truth is it's also really important for gender diverse kids to have role models that look like them and act like them and have, you know, some mirroring going on. And one of the reasons that the suicide rate for gender diverse kids is so high and the depression and anxiety rate is so high is that they don't have that mirroring. And it is a little maddening to me that people will focus on, um, you know, a child like my daughter not having a father, when in reality she's respond she's surrounded by a very wide range of um, genders and very wide range of gender expressions, and so she has a lot of um, freedom to figure out where she fits into that spectrum, who she really feels like she is on the inside and how she wants to dress and present herself. And I don't think that she has um, internalized very much of um, sort of the broader culture's insistence on men are like this and women are like that. 
And the truth is that model is much healthier for all children, whether they're gender diverse or not, my child is not, um, to know that uh, all, all forms of gender expression are okay and that if they see children being bullied for their gender expression, that they have a responsibility to speak up and do something about it. And I think if you're in a family which is very conventional around gender, that's something you're constantly working against and educating about. And so um, that's generally my response when people tell me that, you know, it's important for kids to have a mother and a father is that I think it's important for kids to also be around um, gender nonconforming people on a regular basis and have close relationships with them. And if my wife had had that when she was a child, I doubt that she would struggle as much as she does today with depression and anxiety because she would have had that in her close, close circle. So um, it's just another example of not really caring about queer kids when we say things like that, because that isn't necessarily what queer kids need. Every child needs different things from their family, and our, our job is to figure out what they need and then provide them with the relationships and the resources that they need to the best of our abilities. But we can't do that if we think there's one particular way that's the best way for every child. Yes, yes, and yes again. Agreed, 100%. Same, standing ovation for that. That really well put, Shannon. I, I was uh, scribbling notes, and one of the things that I said, ch you know, children need love, acceptance, respect, and support. And I came across something that I had made up years ago, and it was a nod with a nod to um, Stephen Pressfield's book, the I think it's the Art of War. And I I think the way I put it was our job. I'm paraphrasing, I'm sure I'm going to get this wrong, but our job is to is not to try to mold our kids into being who we think they should be, but to find out who they are and create a space that allows them to be who they are. And your point about um, providing them with a full range of people being themselves including folks in the LGBTQIA community is, is so crucial. I I'm, thank you for that. I'm going to shut up and let Vivek speak. <laughs> well, of course, Margie, um, you, you jumped in and just to say a quick word and it was exactly what I was going to say because we think alike so much. So, <laughs> I'm, so, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, thank I'm you for so introducing sorry. the topic. I appreciate you introducing the topic. <laughs> and because <laughs> I, I really, you know, so first I want to, I want to say that. Uh, where do I want to start with all this? I have like ten different thoughts. So I want to say that. Say uh, I think it's important to acknowledge that gender is important, and the reason I say that is saying. Like when I hear when I hear like the idea that gender isn't important, it's almost to me like saying I don't see color. And uh, and I think for a lot of people, um, you know, their their gender identity is really important. And so I think uh, I think it's worth um, holding that with some uh, you know with some care. 
and uh, and so um, I like like I don't want people to say I ignore color. I don't want, even though I mean I mean I'm a heterosexual cisgendered male, um, but as an ally, I don't want uh, other cisgendered heterosexual males and other people like like that who have that kind of power and privilege to say they don't see gender and gender doesn't matter. And uh, and at the same time, I think that you know um, we we are models for our kids in so many ways. And also, um, modeling um, doesn't create the person. It affects, it influences, but it doesn't create the person, which I think is a wonderful thing. Because what it means is if our, and this is why I was saying that, uh, saying that Margie um, uh, knew exactly what I was going to say, because if our focus is on uh, really wanting the kid to really know themselves and to express themselves, um, as, as authentically as possible and recognizing that, you know, even if you have, even if you have 10 dads and 10 moms and 10 gender nonconforming parents, that's still, everyone's going to be so different and there's still going to be huge gaps in what they experience because we're all different, you know, um, and helping them find out who they are and relate to themselves from that deeply accepting place. That's what has such a profound effect. You know, like I was looking at my, just yesterday, honestly, just yesterday, I was watching my daughter as she walked from the from her bedroom out to the living room where we were watching TV together, and and I was just watching her. She was in her inside clothes, track pants, and, and a long shirt, and but even her inside clothes uh, are so her, and the way she walks is so her. You know, like she's really herself. Um, yes, there's aspects that she's picked up from my wife and I, but you know, like. Neither my wife and I are really solidly in stereotypical gender, um, gender, you know, expressions either. But I mean, like I'm a, I'm a, like I said, I'm a, a cis male, but I'm also I'm a martial artist for thirty years. Um, but I also make jewelry, and I also am a dancer, and uh, I'm very emotional. And my wife is less emotional and very uh, organized, and she goes to work, and I've always stayed home. And uh, and so am I a good male role model? <laughs> Depends on who you ask, I imagine. Yes, oh, you that, are. That, yeah, thank you. <laughs> and that's my point, right? Like, <clears throat> but even within the two of us being her models, we were all whatever we were, we were only that. And the rest of the world also influences. So my my main concern was always her uh, authentic expression with herself, and I see that reflected in her so clearly now. You know, in her style. Um, which is really her. I, no one dresses like her, and she knows it. She's 22, and she knows herself, and she honors it, and she cares about it. She cares about her expression in the world, and she knows that even though it's different from ours, she knows from the inside out that we not only accept it, but we revere it. You know, we revere her authenticity, how, however it's expressed. And, uh, and because of that, she's so unique, you know, and that uniqueness um because we're all unique we just don't necessarily all grow up having that celebrated <laughs> but i think when we do that uniqueness um it shines from us you know mm. and and she's certainly like that i'm so glad you said celebrated that was the that was the word i was thinking of how we can not just hold the space for or allow but just celebrate who the magnificent individual that each of our kids is, 
you know, regardless of whatever label you want to put on them. And Joshua. Yeah. <clears throat> Sorry. Yes. Uh, I, I made a ton of notes during that entire thing because everything that was being said was very, you know, important to hear and very important to agree with and very important to like stress, especially the part about caring for queer, queer kids and making sure that we don't make models just mothers and fathers. Modeling can be, you know, anyone can be a good role model to a child. Um, but that Vivek talked about modeling influences and how we can only model our own influence to our child. That is something that is talked about very, very heavily in transracial adoption groups because we are taking a child from a different culture and immersing them into our culture. <clears throat> and so we have to then not only help them fit in where we are, but we also have to make sure that they are capable of fitting in in their own culture. When they look at people who look like them, can they still fit in? Can they still do what is needed to do? Because you have offered them role models who can model that for them. It's, it's basically called code switching. And it's a huge thing that you, you read about in a lot of different cultures and communities. Because we live in a predominantly white culture, a predominantly white community. Just living in the United States, that's, that's huge. Um, and so offering your kids role models that end up being like them is such a big deal. And so that's why I think it's very important that when you create your intentional communities around your parenting and around having kids, that you include such a diversity in them because you don't know who your kid is going to grow up to be. You only know the potentials that your kid can be. Someone said to me, we had a, a support meeting yesterday for our, our trans and gender diverse kids. And the person who was speaking to the kids that particular day I called her a good role model. I said, you are a great role model to these kids. And she said, I'm a possible model. I'm not a role model because I don't know who they're going to be if they want to look up to me. But I'm someone that they potentially can look up to. And I, I really, I, I didn't think about it till we started having this conversation. But she said that and it really resonated with me. We're not giving our children role models. We're giving them possible models. That's brilliant. Joshua. Do you have any resources that you could recommend for parents of, of you know, who are adopting and who are supporting a child at, who's different than their culture so that they can see themselves in the world and see who they are? Um, off the top of my head, I think that the most important resources you can find is people in the culture of the child you're adopting. I can list a ton of websites and I can list a ton of Facebook groups, but none of them matter unless your child is of that culture. Right. Uh, when it comes to adopting transracially, the two biggest things are listen to adult adoptees, listen to their experiences, listen to their stories, listen to them. And the second one is get to know your child's culture. You know, we're working on learning our child's language. That was her womb language, the language that her mother spoke to her before she was born. You know, we immerse ourselves as much as we possibly can where we live in the culture of our child. And it doesn't matter what anyone else has to say. What matters is what the culture that your child comes from has to say and what adult adoptees have to say when it comes to this. So my biggest piece of advice and biggest resources, find an adult adoptee, submerse, uh, submerse yourself into the culture of your child and learn. 
sit with yourself. You're going to be uncomfortable. Sit with it. You have to do this for your child. That's exactly the kind of resource I was looking for. Thank you. Well, folks, does anybody have any closing thoughts that they want to share before we, we say farewell? We really appreciate you um, sharing your wisdom and your experience so vulnerably with us. Um, I'd love to know, just to let people uh, know where they can find you, if you have your own pages or your own sites that you'd like people to know about, or your blogs or, or anything, um, can you let us know how people can, can find your writing or your information or your work? Um, well, <clears throat> my work is mostly found on Facebook, just in uh, Gender Education Network. If you search that, you'll find us. Uh, we also have a website. Um, I used to have a parenting blog a long time ago and just don't deal with it anymore. Uh, but yeah, mostly what you're going to find for me in terms is stuff in GPU and then just stuff on Gender Education Network. And and the URL for Gender Education Network? Oh, I'm sorry. Um, GenderEducationNetwork.org. We're very simple with it. We try to keep it very simple. That's smart. Um, so I don't have a blog or a, a parenting page, but I do want to mention that um, I've done a lot of work on deconstructing from toxic beliefs around religion and spirituality and figuring out how to reintegrate Christianity and spirituality into our lives um, as a lesbian couple. Um, so if there's anyone listening who is interested in that intersection of um, the LGBTQ community, whether as a parent or with a queer child um, and Christianity or other religions that have historically had toxic beliefs about our community, um, they are very welcome to contact me. I love talking about those issues. I love helping people figure out how to reconcile those two parts of their life. And um, you can find me on Facebook um, or you can email me, which is just my name, shannondelvecchio at gmail.com. Thank you. I just want to take a minute to um, thank both Shannon and Joshua for being here. It's um, really great to talk with you guys and thank you for the work that you do in GPU. Um, Shannon and Joshua both do a lot of work um, sharing gentle ideas also in um, keeping the peace in the group and that's really amazing and I really enjoyed this conversation and what really stands out to me about this conversation is the intersectionality between all, um, whether they be gender diversity or racism or um, any kind of oppression as it stands and privileges. Um, we were able to touch on a lot of different topics and how they all kind of intertwined together and at their core they're very similar because discrimination is discrimination and being a non-discriminant person being a person who accepts all people um, as joshua mentioned earlier you know what really matters is who your child is and accepting all people is at the core of truly accepting who your child is um even if you're not a racially diverse or a gender diverse family, even if you're very cis, het, white type of a family, um, you know, you just don't know who or what 
is inside your child and how they're going to be and what's going to be important to them and exposing them to normalizing all things will help them really see themselves truly for who they are and be comfortable with who they are no matter who that person is and it's so fundamental to being a gentle person and the impact that we make on this world and raising children who are aware of social issues is one of the biggest precursors to change this would be a great time to um, mention diverse perspectives unite uh, a subgroup of gpu that um, deals with issues of diversity specifically um, we would love to have all of you join us there. We, we talk about um, these very specific ways to nurture our child's well-being um, in a culture that has uh, a wide range of different isms. And it's useful even if your child um, that isn't dealing with a particular issue themselves, um, coaching them around how to be an advocate and an ally um, and how to promote diversity is a really key way for them to learn what compassion in action really looks like. And so I think it's fundamental to every family uh, raising healthy, compassionate kids to understand these issues in more depth and to start to engage alongside your child in lifelong learning about uh, neurodiversity and sexual diversity and gender diversity and cultural diversity and racial diversity and linguistic diversity and all these things. Because when we don't have those conversations, uh, we often erase people accidentally. We don't create space for them to be fully themselves. And as you start to learn more, and we are all learning these things together in that group, um, your heart gets bigger and you get, um, you get very concrete skills for learning uh, what to say and how to be helpful in a situation where you might otherwise just be quiet or paralyzed. So I would love to have all of you guys there. Joshua and I are both admin, actually. Are we all admin there? I think we are. <laughs> um, so that's all I wanted to say. Hope to see you there. Mm, thank you for that. Thank you. And I will provide a link in the show notes so that people can find us, find uh, that, that wonderful group. And... Uh, I'll provide all the links in our show notes that we've talked about today. Well, this has all been wonderful and enlightening. Thanks again, Joshua and Shannon, for the work you do, for your insights and your wisdom. And thank you listeners at home or wherever you are for showing up. We really hope you enjoyed this conversation. Let us know what you think. On behalf of Sujai and Vivek and myself, we will catch you next week. Alrighty, everyone. That's the show. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you liked it. We really love your thoughts and your questions, so do send them along. And subscribing, rating the show, and sharing it helps others find us. So please do that, too. We'll catch you next week. Be well and be kind. This podcast is recorded, edited, and produced for you every week by me, Margie Zeus. To get more parenting support from Sujai, Vivek, and me, head over to patreon.com slash 
Gentle Parents Unite and join us. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Gentle Parents Unite. See you next week.